Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Conscious Vibe Podcast, where we elevate intellect through conscious dialogue while exploring race, politics, business, and culture. I'm Dr. Daryl L. Jones, and I'm Charles D. Mitchell. Patricia A. Patton, welcome to the Conscious Vibe. Thank you. Thank Charles you for the invitation. Doing great. Good. Patricia, welcome. We're, we're happy to have you on the show. So you, you join us um, as founder of Cannabis Business Alliance. Can you tell us a little bit about the vision, mission, and purpose of uh, CBA? Yes, I'd love to. As a matter of fact, you guys will actually be my maiden voyage for this. You know, we are going to launch uh, by the beginning of the year. Uh, the Cannabis Business Alliance really addresses healthy aging. My purpose for founding it was to really look for a way to um, bring my experience, my past experience, and the education that I'm getting in this new industry to bear in a way that it benefits others, you know. In addition to the fact, my hope is that um, with the emerging science that we'll be able to transfer that knowledge to community leaders who are already working on health issues, existing health. That's the dream. But at this point, I'm focused on creating the uh, business to business part of the platform, which is to integrate small independent businesses who are some, well, most of them are in the supply chain, mm -hmm. but many of us are not in the supply chain that um, is sort of moving this business into the mainstream. So my hope is, is to create a community of shared knowledge and collaborative partnerships in this whole process. You know, this is a really interesting conversation. I think your timing is just so spot on. There's a lot of opportunity, particularly when you talk about communities of color relative to the business of cannabis. And I think there's a lot of incentives for the industry at large to do business within what you would typically consider geographies that um, perhaps cannabis was uh, distributed <laughs> In a, in, a late, in a way that wasn't legal many, many years ago, right? And so I think there's an opportunity there. And so you're, uh, you, you're, in a, you're in a great situation. I would love to hear what brought you to this point to get involved and how long this journey has been for you. Well, okay. So I worked for the Belgian government in, uh, for 18 years. I was a director of finance and administration for North America in New York City. When I left that position, in, well, it's been about 17 years now, when I was 55, I finally got the courage to actually jump because I really always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I had responsibilities and, um, you know, I'm educated, but I didn't get to do the MBA thing. I didn't get to go to Goldman Sachs and learn how you actually move a business into uh, the mainstream alike you know, my son and a lot of younger people have. So I'm more from the, you make what you want, you create what you want. And that's essentially what I've done in the last 17 years. Three years ago, what I noticed was, again, an opportunity where it was possible for me to maybe not be ahead of the curve, but kind of like to be with the curve. Uh, and that was, I was at South by Southwest where I generally go every year to kind of look because I'm a trend nerd, you know, looking to see, well, 
how is this going to work? Um, how can I integrate that knowledge into how to live a better life as I age? And it seemed to me that this might be an opportunity to bring the skills that I had from my past life, earlier life, into the cultural shift that was changing where both science, culture, and sort of knowledge, popular knowledge, I might be able to like beat a bridge with that. Because before I was always a little early for things. And um, so my hope really was to bring my conversations and my interactions with doctors who know about the cannabinoid system and sorry, doctors who know about the cannabinoid system into, I wanted to blend that with the way that I grew up because I grew up before preventative medicine was a catchword. In the house that I grew up in, in Seattle, Washington, you know, my family migrated from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. I was born in Seattle, Washington. And what we did was we had things from the garden that they use teas, salves, whatever to address it. When you went to a doctor, you were dying. Okay. So it wasn't until mid eighties working for the Europeans that I realized the whole approach to medicine was completely different. You know, that you didn't wait until you were sick to go to the doctor. You treated yourself and you paid attention to the changes in your body as you moved along. So I thought maybe there's something in cannabis medicine or in the plant that could be used to help people live a better life. If it was good for you at the end of life, maybe it's good for you, you know, before you get to that point. And, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. I was in San Francisco. I dropped out of college when I was 19. I moved to San Francisco and I wanted to be a part of the change that I thought was going to happen, which as it turned out, it didn't. Yeah. You know, I was so, I was just about to say, did you mean 17 years ago when you were 25? Oh, get out of here. But um, you know, it, look, you you just shared something, you know, that you went through a whole continuum in terms of a lot of things you've experienced and gone through uh in, in your life. I'd love to just rewind a little bit. Tell us about your your upbringing. It's, I'd love to get a little more detail, a little more color around that. Um, if you want to share a little more about your time in the 60s, I think that's really, really interesting. Well, I was born in Seattle, Washington, in the county hospital. Uh, my parents came from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. I was actually educated in the public school system, but I, in retrospect, realized I was trapped. So I learned languages, went to, you know, um, flamenco concerts, symphonies as a young child. I had the same Spanish teacher from the time I was seven until I went to the university. Um, I have a degree in romance linguistics, so I learned four languages and uh, I played cello, this and that. But, you know, I come from a Black Southern home. So there was never any confusion about culturally what my roots were. So um, I went to school in the south of France. I studied um, the migratory impact of Harkis on the French language in the early 70s because after the Algerian war, 
the French had to relocate all the people who were traitors and who had supported them during that war. And they were located in the south of France. I went to the University of Nice, so I was supposedly thinking about the impact that immigrants had on a language and the French very protective of the French language. So um, that gave me um, insight into culturally what people try to preserve. And it also helped me understand why the retentions that we have as um, Black Americans, indigenous people, um, whatever, you know, why it's important to hold on to those things because um, they disappear. Like, I don't know how to make a German chocolate cake and everybody in my family knew how to do it, you know? Um, so I went back to university, got my degree, and then I went to law school. I went to law school like mid seventies. I went to law school when there were five people in my class and there was no support. I dropped out my second year, worked for the prisoner's rights project in Massachusetts and realized I didn't want to do that. So that began my that began really my period of really being myself, of really creating the things that I wanted in life. So they may look homemade, but um, but it was an opportunity for me to express myself in ways that didn't require approval from someone else. Yeah. That is so interesting, you know, and I think part of what, you know, what's coming up for me as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about how, particularly in the period of time when you grew up, how geography perhaps changed your trajectory of the things you were exposed to and opportunities that came before you in life, right? Moving out of the South, which I think was a big thing, to Seattle, to, to that area, and then have the opportunity to be schooled uh, in France. Can you talk about how that probably changed the opportunities for you or the things that you foresaw that could allow you to at some point along the way say, here's an opportunity for me to be myself and to explore this different line of opportunity? Because, because I'm, I'm thinking you're just a handful of years uh, ahead of my parents. No, but uh, younger than my parents. And your experience is a completely different one from the one they grew up in in the South. Uh, and, and they still live in the South, right? And, and so their uh, doctrination was go get education, go to school, get a job, work there for 30 years and have a career. And your exploration has been completely different. I think that's super uncommon for that time period? It is, I, it's, I mean, it became normal for me, but in truth, I realized that I have had a very um, distinct uh, life experience. And um, I think that having had the opportunity to live abroad, at a period of, of change and unrest historically made a big difference because I 
one, I was always attracted to, to change, like, and being somewhere in that mix, you know, uh, wanting to understand how to be more of myself. That's, that's like a personal thing in my life. How can I be more of who I am? Um, and I think that because there were, I was in a community of people for whom that made, that was important. Um, it made me think that I could be more, more of who I am. So um, it was a period of time when, when people of color were beginning to understand that there was the connection between their experience on different continents. And it was also a period of, of, um, there was sort of a break with the old school because I was sent into the world like most people and told to find a way to be secure. Like that, that was essentially the message. That's why I go, you have the talent, go to law school, do this, do that, because that way you can be secure. You can take care of yourself. People, my mother, her sisters and brothers and all had come of age during a period of scarcity. So the information that they shared with us was this was sort of the best advice they could give us like do this to be secure so if you bought into the idea of being secure which is important i don't want to diminish the fact that that's not important but i wanted to live my life <laughs> so i took chances i took chances that um at this point it probably would be in my best interest to have been part of a sorority so I'd have support for my business, but I wanted to live my life, you know? And so that's kind of how I've gone through it. You know, I wanted to, to, um, I wanted to have the experiences at the Museum of Natural, I mean, of, of African art, for example, in New York City where collectors got to visit private collections. But if you didn't have like $10,000 as a member, you couldn't have those experiences. So I created those experiences because I had friends in Europe who had private collections of African art. I could create a trip. I knew how to travel around the world. I could take small groups to visit private collections of art in London, in Belgium, you know, in Morocco, you know. And these are the kinds of experiences that, kind of second nature to me. So I'm looking to create a community of business people now who uh, want to be, who want to form collaborative partnerships in a business sense to move their businesses forward. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do for the Cannabis Business Alliance, you know. So, you guys are business minds. You guys have serious business minds. You guys know how to launch a business, take it into the mainstream, the real way. We should talk. Well, Charles is probably the one to talk to on that. I'm fighting between golfing and being an entrepreneur. <laughs> and golf is winning. So <laughs> I, I, I literally was about to say golf is winning. <laughs> so that, that's that's me living my life. So, um, so your focus on baby boomers, yes, uh, is it feels unique. What was it that incited this passion about focusing specifically on this target audience? 
Well, I think the primary, the statistics support the fact that um, by 2034, their baby boomers will occupy people who technically are classified as baby boomers demographically, that number will increase. And most of us are interested in aging, but we want to do it in a healthy way. Like we want to be actively involved in our lives even as we age. So I think it's an overlooked demographic, really. And the other thing is that to talk about baby boomers is not to talk about a particular age group. When you're 50, you're completely different from when you're 60. You know, I mean, you're completely different. Even at 55, you're not the same as when you're 50. I mean, so it's a large group with various subsections. I don't think that, um, I don't think that we are being talked to in a way that says, I see you. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people who brand could do a better job at doing that, you know. I mean, and the other thing is that just because you look at me and you see that I've hit my seventh decade, I mean, and I'm black, it doesn't mean that I don't have more in common with someone who doesn't look class-wise completely right. opposite from me. So there has to be some sort of understanding about who you're talking to and how to talk to different people. And I think that that too, I can... Uh, bring to this equation. You know, DJ's uh, a big data geek. Um, ah. I know that's super important to him. Uh, tell me, have, is there research that you're leaning on as you go down this path that your audience, you know, people that are going to be beneficiaries, baby boomers who see this as an opportunity for the longevity uh, discussion, what, what, is, what is some of the research telling you about how this will truly help? Well, most of the research that I've seen is not, not extremely helpful, to be perfectly honest. There's some research coming out, out of uh, the, the best research that I've seen, um, you know, and I'm not talking about census data or for that matter, even Pew. But the best research that I've seen is coming from an independent company called Oasis Intelligence. And that was the first intel the uh, research that I saw that made me think that they had actually talked to people. Mm -hmm. Most of the research that, that you see relative to cannabis is coming from either Frontier, uh, Headset, um, and one other. But the point I'm trying to make is that most of it is based on sales data, primarily from the West Coast. So what you can see is that people over 55 are making certain purchases. That's what you can see as it relates to the cannabis industry. What you don't have good information on is um, what people are actually being treated for. And I don't think that, I mean, I have relationships with the Knox docs. So I know, as far as I know, ACAM is probably one of the best um, sources of information that is rigorous. Um, but I guess because of HIPAA, you don't really know what people are being tr treated for, except sort of anecdotally. 
Um, I actually think that if people, if, if you could find platforms to talk about this that were not cannabis related or something like that, it would be better. Like Steve Harvey needs to have a five minute show or something where people would just talk about cannabis in a way that you know that it's medicine, for example. You know, you can just talk about it within the confines of a normal conversation because people are partaking, but people should know that all CBD is not the same, <laughs> for example. Uh, just because you can buy it doesn't mean technically that it's even legal. I mean, the hemp bill is a slippery slope. So, and these are conversations that should be normalized. It's not, it's not just, I mean, young people consider normalization me smoking a joint talking to you. For me, the whole idea of wellness, the whole idea of normalization should be expanded. Just like the whole idea of conversation about diversity, it should be expanded. Inclusion, that should be redefined. And it's people like us who can do that. We just need a platform for reaching a broader cross-section and not in from some narrow confines of this marijuana. So your work is focused on, um, you mentioned earlier, the supply chain and um, identifying opportunities to do your work across the supply chain. Yes. Are you finding certain dimensions of the supply chain more or less receptive to what you bring to the table? Well, I just, okay, so last week I went to the Emerald Cup and that was my first time, you know, getting an understanding of what the farmers are struggling with. Mm -hmm. Because living in New Jersey, which is where I am most of the time, I'm spending the winter in Los Angeles this year, but um, I didn't really understand what the problems were with farmers. And I think that most older people really want what small farmers have rather than mass produce product because they're it's like I like wine from uh, Paso Robles, but I know that there's something connected. I like those wines because of where they're grown. It's the same thing with cannabis, you know, but so the mass produce products. It's not to say if my goal is not necessarily to get high, I am not looking for uh, a cannabis cultivar that has 30 something percent THC. And I'm, I'm not looking for that, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of people are not looking for that. So I just to understand that you have choices, just to understand that there are terpenes. I mean, these are just simple conversations that should not be 10 years down the line right. for people who are engaged with health. They, they, they shouldn't be. What, what, are your, what are some of your operational goals in the short term for a CBA? You know, I'm, I'm thinking about some relationships that I have. I, mean, I have a matter of fact, I'm, I'm meeting a friend this evening for, for, for a drink who uh, owns a cannabis company. And so how are you trying to make those operational connections to actual drive the business model that you're 
beginning to uh, to sort of move forward? Um, those are very difficult to make because I'm sure the person that you're going to have a drink with tonight is a white male. You know, I'm guessing right. that 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 person is a white male. I don't have that same kind of access. You know, I mean, most of the actual businesses that are burning through money at this point in the game while, you know, you wait for things to turn and for the laws to change. They are not people that I have access to. You know, um, but you do know. Okay. That's hello. Tuesday, solstice day. Okay. But yeah, I mean, these are <laughs> and, and that's that's kind of the point, right? And and, and part of you know, I was thinking earlier, I mean, that there are these, and I've had these discussions with him, as a matter of fact, they have things in front of them that are requiring them to go back into, um, again, that sort of demographic where in order to move forward the business goals that they have, they have to make these connections and literally, literally siphon off parts of their business to, I would say, you know, again, a different demographic that has not had these types of opportunities, which could very well fit into the bucket of the types of businesses that you want to make connections with um, and for, for, for TBA's purposes. So that's why I was trying to dig a little deeper into some of your operational goals and how you want to move this whole thing forward. Well, okay. Operationally, at this point in time, I'm operating with myself and one other person who is really um, has really I put my website and all that information together. I haven't made it live yet. I just have like a landing page there, but um, but it's ready to go live. It's not pretty, but it's the thought process is there, you know, um, and I think that. Um, the opportunity that you just mentioned relative to social equity, I mean, certainly what I'm doing is I'm creating a community of what I consider superstars, you know, like badasses who are either operating in the media field, who have uh, products, you know, who have um the range of things, labs, you know, but these are all people who don't have the kind of access even that you have, you know. But what I'm trying to demonstrate is that this is a platform where collaborative partnerships can really exist. You know, there's no reason for me to have to chase down the uh, chief marketing officer of Archview. Uh, for her to say, um, you're interesting. Do you want to join the women in marketing? That's not going to take me anywhere. You know, I like I'm trying to have a real business. I'm trying to make something happen for a community of people who will eventually pay an annual membership, just like the uh, Association of, of um, Affordable Housing Investors, because there's something real that happens there for them. You know, this is a community where something real happens there for them, where unlike me, I'm not paying two hundred fifty dollars to be a member of the 
Cannabis Tourism Association, and like I don't even get a, met, a message from them. Like two hundred fifty dollars means something to me. Yeah. You know, but I also know that if if I can't meet anybody, if I um, can't serve on a committee, you know, if there are no program programmatic content that will move my business forward, then that $250 should be in my pocket, not in theirs. Well, we should, okay. we should talk offline. And I was, yeah. you know, we, we, we always love to stay connected because it's just part of the, the, you know, the, the thing that we do here is, you know, when, when we're, when you're a guest on our show, you're part of the family, we'll, we'll stay connected and keep, keep the conversation going. So let, let's, let's talk more about what you're trying to accomplish and um, see where we, we can go from there. Certainly. Well, I appreciate you having made time for me to talk off script, even. <laughs> you know uh, about- everything, everything off script is on script. Yeah, no, there's no script. There's no script. We just want to have the opportunity to get to know great people like you, hear your story, and, and see how we can continue the dialogue. I appreciate it. So, Patricia, one quick, can you lift that microphone up just a little bit? It's rubbing on you when you talk. There you okay. Go. Um, so one of the last questions I'd like, like to ask is you're doing some work when you're actually a, uh, brain trust advisor down at Morehouse, right? With the Satcher Institute, what does that work look like, uh, working with the universities and how are they receiving the work that you do and the intellect that you bring in this cannabis industry? I think it's appreciated. I, I do think it's appreciated. I think that the idea of of them creating a brain trust was brilliant. I think that the idea of a medical school um, seeking to combine with a black owned dispensary is also forward thinking. It's not legal in Georgia yet, but the idea to be thinking it forward like that, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I would say that the that it is that it's an ongoing kind of figure it out sure. process at this point because the laws are different. But I think that the medical part of it, like creating a blueprint for understanding the relationship between the phytocannabinoid and the endocannabinoid system, that that's important for the healing community to begin to integrate into their conversation. Like mm. just to think about it. You just to think about, oh, we really I mean, they didn't discover this until 97. So doctors are not the last word on this whole process. They, too, are in the process of learning about how to talk to people about that. I mean, um, so I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to work with a with a black HBCU on this problem. And I hope that it's able to go further and actually into the communities, um, helping people. You know, a lot of people, you know, as you know, change is hard. I mean, change, change is difficult. So it's not going to happen in one generation. But I think that we have to, like, get past this kind of respectable kind of thing like those of us who have the had the opportunity to understand that we set our own ceilings you know and that if we have something 
that can be used to extend human race. And we have we have a responsibility yeah. to share that, you know, even on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> Dig. <laughs> well, it sure has been a pleasure having you on the show. I, the work you're doing is so valuable. And, um, you know, hopefully these institutions and dimensions of the supply chain are beginning to understand how critical uh, the work that you do is. Uh, there's always a tomorrow in anything that we do. And a lot, a lot of what you're doing feels like tomorrow, but tomorrow's coming fast. Really? Yeah, I like the way you did that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, encouraging yeah so i appreciate it we appreciate you all right anything you'd like to ask us before we uh before we take off well you know what i could actually have you guys on my podcast me and mary jane you know um because i think i'd love to interview you all you know we would love to love to yeah I'm speaking for Charles, but I mean, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we would love to speak to me. Yeah, I would like that because I think that that's part of the other thing that normalization means that we should have these conversations about change, about how we feel and even about what we don't know. You know, like we're I mean, even if you're afraid, if there's anything I've learned in aging, it's like even if you're afraid, you still have to go through it. Yeah, you know, sure. Yeah. So. Well, we would, so I'll send you an invitation. All right. We're, we're, we're there. It. All right. Cool. This has been great. We really appreciate you joining us. And uh, thank you for joining us on The Conscious Vibe. Thank you for joining us. And check us out on tcvpodcast.com. <laughs>